Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is not just a piece of paper by Pastor Sean Wood. Amen. If you'd like to meet me in... We're going we're gonna to jump around a little bit, but we'll start in Genesis 15, but we're going to land the plane in Ephesians chapter 5. This morning I want to finish off what we, we had a great deal of fun this month looking at intimacy and marriage and the Sunday nights and I want to finish that off this morning and I'm reminded of F.W. Borum. F.W. Borum was a pastor that actually graduated from the School of Pastors by C.H. Spurgeon. He had a, he had a school for pastors and, and F.W. Borum graduates and his first appointment is in a little place that some people might know as Mosquil in New Zealand, a little place he pastored for many years. He went from New Zealand to a really, really important place called Tasmania. And he passed it in Tasmania, uh, but he is listed, and we're talking a list behind people like the Apostle Paul. F.W. Boreham was in the top 10 preachers ever known. This guy had a gift. Ravi Zacharias says, every morning when I wake up, I read one chapter of F.W. Boreham. Prolific author, prolific preacher. But he said, uh, he said he sees his role both as a pastor and a preacher, not to not to point out the crooks or the kinks in everybody else's stick. He says, my aim and my prayer is to lay down a straight stick. And, and this morning, as, as we unpack a little bit of what marriage is, my goal is not to, to point to the kinks. My, my goal is not to point to all the imperfections that may arise. My goal this morning is simply to lay down a straight stick and, and to uphold what marriage has always meant to be and what it actually is. And so that's my prayer this morning that we would have a look at the biblical view of marriage. The Bible begins and it ends with a marriage. It begins with a marriage in the Garden of Eden and it speaks of a marriage that is coming but can also be enjoyed now. Who here likes mayonnaise? Anybody like mayonnaise? I don't mind mayonnaise. My doctor tells me you've got to stop eating mayonnaise. Have a look at you, son. But I'm going to make a statement Marriage is exactly like mayonnaise. No, I'm not Gordon Ramsay. We're not going to do a cooking show. But, and I'll let you hang on to that thought of why marriage might be like mayonnaise. As I opened my notes, the, the push today, the reason that I decided to do this today is because the push in our society today is to water down and to devalue marriage. I want to throw out some statistics. I'm only focusing on Australia. FYI, these statistics are worse in America and they're also worse in places in Europe. But I want to speak about some statistics concerning marriage. The Australian crude marriage rate has dramatically dropped. And what I mean by that, basically the amount of people getting married. In 1970... 9.6 marriages occurred for every 1,000 population in Australia. In 2017, 4.6 marriages occur for every 1,000 population. That's under half the people now get married. Interesting. The average marriage age, this one didn't surprise me. I've noticed a trend in this one. But the average marriage age in 1976 for a woman was 21 years of age. Today, for men, uh, for women, sorry, it's 30.1 years, the average age to be getting married. For men, 23 years in 1976. And today, it's 32 years. We're getting married later in life. By the time I was 32, I'd had all my children. 
and wanted to give them all back. <laughs> this one was the most alarming for me personally, is that the types of marriages in the last century have changed dramatically. In the year 1902, about the time Rob was born, you can guess which one. <laughs> the types of marriage, in 1902, 96% of marriages occurred by a religious celebrant. They were officiated by a religious celebrant. By the time we get to 1999, 51% of marriages are, are officiated by a civil celebrant. By the time we reach 2017, 80.8% of marriages now occur outside of religious parameters. That's what the goal is here. Let's get marriage away from the religious parameters. The average length of a marriage in 2017 in Australia was 12 years long. If your marriage is longer than 12 years here this, this morning, I want you to know it's above average. And I'm not going to ask you to stand up, but I am going to brag and I am going to boast on Neil and Pam, and I am going to boast in Hazel and Harold, and I'm going to continue to boast, because if there is a great picture of marriage after 50 years, these guys are living it. So well done. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a great testament to marriage. Here's, we see a degrading in marriage, but we also see some symptoms that might point to it. The rate of cohabitation before marriage in 1976 was 16%. That's 16% of people lived together before they were married. The, the coin of the, the 20th century is something along the lines of, you've got to try before you buy. I don't even know where that came from. But anyway, in 1976, 16% of people lived together before they were married. In 2017... 80%. They say the divorce rate is 50%. You've got a 50% chance of hitting divorce. I don't, this morning, I bring no, if you're sitting here this morning and you're divorced or you're on your second marriage, there's no judgment in this room. As I said, I'm not here to talk about the kinks. I'm here to talk about what marriage is and can be. In 2017, there were 112,954 marriages in Australia. There was 49,032 divorces, so a little bit under half. But what has all this got to do with anything? It tells us that less people are getting married. Marriages last less time than they used to. More marriages conducted outside religious parameters. That's an enormous concern. And that for many, marriage has become nothing more than a piece of paper. I've worked with people that are younger than myself, and their testimony is, why would I get married? Nothing changes. We live together. If, I, if we leave each other, then we've got to divide half the property, and uh, I kind of understand that. But if you're going to enter into marriage, if you haven't entered into marriage, then I pray you listen this morning to what marriage actually is. And if you are in marriage, I pray that the Lord would touch your heart for what marriage can really look like. We've lost what marriage is. If you're in Genesis 15, I want, to, I want to tell you what marriage is. Marriage is a covenant. And we have lost the deep meaning of what a covenant is. And we're going to have a look at a scriptural covenant. It's not the first one in scripture, but it's one of the most prominent ones. The first covenant uh, really between God and man is really Noah after the flood. God God makes a covenant with Noah that he'll, he'll never send rain on the earth like that again. 
So in Genesis chapter 15, I'm going to, you can read this later on if you like, but I'm going to paraphrase, I'm going to point out some significant points that a covenant is made up of. But a covenant is what we would understand to be an agreement. But back in patriarchal times, a covenant was enormously serious. And uh, people would enter into covenant together and it was, it was binding, it was serious. The first man I ever worked for was a man of about 80 years of age. He was a German man, he wasn't a Christian, but what I appreciated was, if you had a verbal agreement with him and you shook his hand, that was watertight. It cost him almost everything he had when he shook hands with people that he shouldn't have done and they didn't hold up their end of the agreement. That's not what an agreement was supposed to be. That's not what a covenant was ever supposed to be. And before we go too much further, every covenant in the times of the patriarchs, there was never a back door. There was never any fine print and no one ever signed prenuptial agreements. There was no, but if it doesn't work out, there was a covenant where you hold up your end, the other person holds up their end. That's how it worked. As we work our way through, we see that Abraham has left everything. He's left his family. He's left uh, everything he knows, his town, and he's gone where God has told him to. He he takes Lot and his wife, Sarai. I'm I'm using Abraham, but here he's called Abram. But he leaves everything. And then he says to God, what are you going to give me? I don't even have a son. And so God begins to make a covenant with Abram. And if you come down to verse 5, he says, uh, he speaks about... uh, being able to count the stars. He says, as many stars as there are as your offspring, so shall your offspring be. And what we find is, is that a covenant always involves a promise. And uh, for the, whenever we are preparing people for marriage, it is highly important that we make sure they understand that when you stand at the altar, you are going to say these words. You are going to promise this before God. You are going to promise this to the other person. And we need you to know what you're saying because it's actually pretty serious. You're making a promise to God and you're making a promise. So, so a, a covenant involves... A promise. We read on, uh, God promises this to Abram. Abram goes on, he says, verse 8, but Abram says, or he said, Oh Lord God, how am I to know? What's Abraham saying? I want some kind of an assurance here. I want some kind of a commitment. How do I know that you're going to come through on your end of the bargain? So we see that a covenant involves a promise and involves assurances and commitments. When you stand before somebody else at the altar, you are committing to them for life. Then we work our way down to verse 17 and it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And the pieces are the pieces that Abraham had prepared. And what's happened here is God said, go and get these animals. He goes and gets the animals and he cuts them in half. And then this is enormously profound what happens here, by the way. And what happens is a smoking pot and a, and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And when a covenant was made in patriarchal times, in, in ancient times, they would, they would cut the animals in half and both people would pass between the animals. And what you were saying was, if I don't uphold my side of this agreement, if I break this covenant, then let what happened to these animals happen to me. That's how serious it was. This is what I love about God. When he was making a covenant with Abram, he was the only one that passed between the pieces because he knew Abram wasn't going to be able to hold up to it. 
Marriage is a covenant. Marriage doesn't have any fine print. Marriage involves a promise, it involves assurances and commitments, and it involves a ceremony which we've just witnessed here with God and Abram. There is, we call it a wedding. Anybody know where we get the word wed or wedding from? We get it from the word world, and this is, we're going to cover this a little bit later on where uh, I, I used to work in radiators, I used to do a lot of welding and stuff, and it's where we take two opposite pieces of metal and we join them together. And we call that ceremony a wedding, where two people stand up before a bunch of witnesses and they make promises and they make assurances and they make commitments between one and another and God in front of all the people. That's a covenant. That's an agreement. That is what marriage is. It's not just a piece of paper. And so... How does marriage look for us? We, we, we looked at intimacy in marriage and some practical communication skills through the course of the night services in November. But what does the Bible say about marriage? And how do we make mayonnaise? What has marriage got to do with mayonnaise, Pastor? You've gone, you've gone mad again. Let's have to ring someone to put you in a jacket. But uh, the thing that amazes me about mayonnaise, I actually enjoy eating it, but I found that mayonnaise comprises of two major elements, and that is oil and vinegar. And I know this, I'm not a cook and I'm not a chef, but I know this, you can stir, you can beat, you can whisk, you can cook, you can do what you like, but you cannot get oil and vinegar to combine. You can't. They're incompatible elements. And no matter what you do to them, they will always separate. So how do we end up with mayonnaise? Something amazing happens to these two elements when you add an egg. Now you've got oil, now you've got vinegar, you put an egg in, and now they combine. The profound thing is you can't see the oil anymore, and you can't see the vinegar anymore, and you can't really distinguish the egg. You've got mayonnaise. And a marriage is so much like mayonnaise because we have two incompatible people. Males and females are incompatible. We come from two different planets. And we spend a lifetime working out which one we're from. But we're completely incompatible and yet we come to something called marriage where we're all supposed to be like mayonnaise where we can't really distinguish this person, we can't really distinguish this person and we can't distinguish the egg. And I want you to start asking yourself, what's the egg in marriage? People just shouted out some answers. We're going to have a look at what the egg is, but we've got some other ingredients that we're going to add. And I want to, I want to talk to uh, some verses here. Now, I know, men, you're, you're getting excited, but the first verse I want to look at is uh, chapter t- verse 22 of Ephesians 5. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands. And all the men just sat up in their chairs and went, here we go. Hey, all the men are like, here we go. I told you you should have come today, dear. I know that's what all the men are thinking. But I want to warn the men, this is the only verse in this passage that is a directive to the women. So be careful, men, because we're coming around your corner in a moment. But I want to unpack what this means because I'm going to confess that the history of the church at times and in some places, the advice in troubled and challenged relationships to the woman has been, shut up, go home and submit to your husband. And that's not what it means. 
That's not what it means. Anybody that tells you to go and submit to your husband, tell them no. We're going to unpack submission. Let me, let me highlight one thing. If you have to demand submission at any point in time, you haven't got it. If a, if a male person inside of a relationship or a marriage has to demand submission, you haven't got it and you're not going to get it. Submission, the word submit means to be subject. Peter uses that word in his epistle. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands. And it's a military term. So I'm going to clarify that. To be subject or to submit is a military term and it absolutely means to fall in behind. And women are looking, I can feel the love, women, I know. <laughs> but hold with me for a moment. It means to rank behind, yes. It means to fall behind, yes. It means to come under, yes. It is a word that is actually a response. And Paul gives us a bit of a hint in this verse when he says, wives, submit to your own husbands. And he goes on and says, as to the Lord. There's an example there. And if people come to me and say, why do you submit to Christ? Why do you submit your life to Christ? Because of his great love for me. I willingly submit. That's what submission is. It's a willing surrender. But here's the thing, men, that if we want submission, and sometimes it looks like that, right? No, I'm joking. If we want submission, then the women have to have something to fall in behind. If you would like Wives to be submissive. It's very easy when we have men who are the head of their household. Submission should only ever be a response to a man that is leading his household. So ingredient number one is submission. Ingredient number two can be found in this phrase, for the husband is the head. All the men are going, quick, move past this button. Ingredient number two is headship. Let's keep reading on. Verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. In what manner? What does that look like? You're the head of your wife. You're the head of your household as Christ is the head of the church and his body and is himself its saviour. There is a desperate call for men to stand up and be the head in their marriage. I would say that if you want to summarise what is the role of a man in a marriage, we can summarise it with three Ps. First one is you are called to pastor your family and that's to lead them and guide them spiritually. Second one is you are to protect your family. You can say what you like about me, you can threaten me all you like, but if you come against my family, I'll end you. Simple as that. God gave me my family, so I will protect them. We, we pastor them, we protect them, and men, we are to provide for them. That's what the head does. Jesus provides everything I need. Jesus protects and guides me. Jesus pastors me. As Christ does his church, so the man must be in the relationship. What does leadership look like? We get this wrong in church. John Maxwell gets it right. The first step to leadership is servanthood. 
If you want to know how to lead your wives, men, if you want to know how it is that you can best lead your wife, find how you can best serve her. How can you best help her? How can you best love her? We're going to unpack that in a moment. There's a third element, and this one, I think, is the most important in every marriage. You notice how every time Paul makes a point, he finishes it with a reference to Christ. The most important aspect you can bring to your marriage, the most important ingredient that any one person can bring to a marriage is a strong relationship with Christ. Because a strong relationship with Christ enables us to view each other differently. We interact with each other differently. If you are strong and your relationship is strong, then it has an effect in how you interact with each other. Strong relationship with God, strong relationship with each other. That's the most important ingredient that we can bring as to the Lord. Ingredient number three is we must invite Christ into our marriages. And we're going to see what that looks like in a moment. But the number one, imagine if one person has a strong spiritual walk with Christ, but imagine if both do. See, this is how God has designed marriage. We, if you're sitting here this morning wondering, what if I asked, what is, what's the goal in marriage? Does anybody know what the goal of marriage is? Procreate. That's part of it, Yes. Yes, yeah. The ultimate goal at the top, everything flows out of this, but the ultimate goal is Christ-likeness. Marriage is the greatest tool God has given us to fashion, <laughs> to fashion us into Christ-likeness. Marriage, the, the, being married will take away your jagged edges. You can't, you have to live transparently. It causes you to be, trans, and, and just to treat somebody differently. And the goal is Christ-likeness. Why? Because verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. The whole goal, it's not to pay your house off at age 35. It's it's not to have 3.2 kids. It's not to have two cars. All of those things are incidental, yes. But the ultimate goal of marriage is for two people to become closer and closer to Christ and be more Christ-like. Ingredient number one, submission. Ingredient number two, we need headship in marriage. We need men leading their marriages. The, The Australian government, although they did change the marriage laws, and I won't get into that today, but although they did change the marriage laws, there, is, there was a reluctance, and the reason there is a reluctance is the Australian government is well aware that what holds our society together is the fabric of family. And they know full well that if you begin to tear apart this fabric, which is the family, because God's given that as an institution, church, family, institutions, which God works through. But if, if you tear apart the fabric of the family, you will begin to tear apart the fabric of society. I'll give you one example. Uh, when I was in the forestry, I worked with a lot of men that were straight out of jail. Uh, I couldn't get workers, so they'd ring me and say, look, will you put these guys on? They were some of the best workers I had. But I began to realise something pretty common with all of them, and the statistics back it up. Over 70% of males in our prison systems are there because of a breakdown in the male figure in the family life. 
and mostly because they're not there. They grow up without a father. And uh, they either didn't have one or the guys I spoke to hated their fathers for various reasons. I don't, I don't want to get into that. But <clears throat> So we see that there's a push to protect the family unit. And when it's functioning correctly, there's great health. Let me read this verse and then we'll come to the egg of marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's a huge challenge, men. And gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. The egg of marriage is love. Whatever demographic your marriage sits at here this morning, and I don't really know where they sit, but I want to I want to lay out a, a bit of a wager. I'm not a gambling man, but I'll, I'll put a wager out there. If we have two people, and there are challenges in whatever demographic, if there's a challenge in your marriage, I want to I bet you I will I will make a wager with you that if one person in the marriage makes a commitment to love the other one, the three things will happen. You'll transform the other person. You'll transform your marriage and you will transform yourself. It doesn't matter where you sit on the, on the paradigm of marriage, if you make a commitment to deal with yourself, because you're the only one you can control. Have you ever worked that out? We try to control other people. There shouldn't be any control in marriage, but we try to control other people. But the only person you can actually control is you. You can't make somebody love you. You can be more lovable. But you can make a commitment to love someone else. And I put a wager out there that no matter where your marriage is, if one person puts their hand up and says, I'm just going to forget all of that and I'm going to love that person, I bet you it will transform your marriage. And we have a misconception of what love is. People say, well, love's a feeling. Love's an emotion. Love can produce feelings. Love can produce emotions. But nowhere in the Bible is love referenced as a, as a feeling or an emotion. It's always an action. Love is a verb. It is a choice that you make to love somebody else. We need more marriages with that kind of love, the gospel kind of love, the kind of love that says, no matter how you speak to me, I'm still going to love you. Although you have imperfections, I'm still going to love you. I bet you if you make that choice, you transform your marriage. We need some transformed marriages. There are, some, there are some people that are hurting. John Maxwell, he says it beautifully, and quite often we, we all come from different backgrounds, but most of us here, if we went around the room, most of us here have been hurt. And John Maxwell said something very profound once. He said, hurt people, hurt people. Which means people that have been hurt in the past have a tendency to hurt other people but in a marriage, when two people come together, the egg that binds two incompatible elements, male and female, the egg is absolutely love. It is a choice to love the other person. To love the other person even when it hurts. To love the other person when they're weak. Recently, I prepared two wonderful people for marriage 
And as we were working through the vows, I said, you know, I want to stop you for a moment. I said, do you guys, you know, we just rattle the vows off, don't we? It's like for better or for worse. But what does worse look like? Because that's what we're pledging in marriage. What does worse look like? And it could look like a number of different things for each person and each individual. We, I, I was interested during the, the, the same-sex debate about same-sex marriage and I couldn't understand it because if equality is what you're after, I don't know why we have to redefine anything. So I, I couldn't understand what the argument was all about. But part of me was saying, you know what, the call of the church is for everybody else outside of here to hold marriage in honour. And that's absolutely what we should do. A fee, a Hebrew, sorry, 13 verse 4 says, let marriage be held in honour among all. But my plea to everybody inside of this room is if we want people outside to honour marriage, we need to honour marriage inside. It starts with us. As we read through Ephesians chapter 5, we come down to verse 31. And I don't want to finish today before I speak about the greatest marriage in the universe. Paul says in verse 31, he says, Therefore a man, therefore, which is all the information that's gone previous. Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Beautiful. Verse 32, he goes on and says something. He says, the mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. And the whole time that Paul's been talking about physical marriage and what that looks like, he now says it's an example of our union with Christ. He said, and this mystery is profound. And so it is. But the, the example that is given is in verse 31 where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And, and the call of the gospel is this. The call of the gospel message is that we as the, as the people of God would leave the world, would leave all of that behind us. And if you want to know what faith looks like, if you want to know what the Christian walk looks like, it looks like holding fast to Christ. Jesus put it like this in John chapter 15. He said, abide in me. It means exactly the same thing. It means to hold fast to Christ. But I want to bring a warning because we can so easily, so easily we can stay at the dating stage with Jesus. You see, physical marriage is like mayonnaise, but spiritual marriage is exactly the same. We have God over here, a, a holy God who's completely, completely all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing. A God so holy that sin cannot be in his presence. And over here we have man so saturated in sin that, that, that one preacher said if, if, we were, if sin was blue, we'd all be Smurfs. So over here we have this holy God and over here we have sinful man and they're like oil and vinegar. They can never, be, it's completely incompatible. And if we're going to have spiritual mayonnaise, we need an egg. Thank you, Jesus, for being my egg. Why? Because without Jesus, man and God could never be together. But because of Jesus, we are together. And you can be united to God today. 
in the greatest marriage in the universe. For so many in this room, Jesus stands at the altar waiting for you. Jesus stands at the altar. Please hear my warning, he won't stand there forever. He won't stand there forever. So many treat their physical marriage today, secular society, treats physical marriage as if it's just another piece of paper. Why would I get married? What am I going to gain by it? So many people treat their spiritual marriage just like it's a piece of paper. Many of us need to move past the dating stage. We're happy to date Jesus. Well, Jesus, I can see you on Sunday, Jesus. I've got about an hour and a half. I can see you on Sunday if you like, and we'll make a date, and we'll date Jesus for years, and we might even move on to getting engaged and Oh, Jesus, I might come twice on Sunday. But at the end of the day, Jesus doesn't want to date you. Jesus doesn't want to be engaged to you. Jesus wants for there to be a wedding. And just like a physical marriage, you wake up, every morning you wake up, I get the privilege to wake up. Us men, we all married above ourselves. I get to wake up to the most beautiful thing in the universe. I'm so thankful that God gave me a woman that could put up with me. People say, why did you and Annette get married? Because she's the only one that would have me. <laughs> if, if you're here this morning and you're saying to yourself, I'm waiting for my soulmate, stop waiting. You don't have one. Marriage is a choice to love somebody. I know everybody here is going, no, 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 I married my soulmate. Good, praise God. Fact of the matter is, they don't exist. Marriage is a choice to love somebody. And Jesus asked everybody in this room to make a choice to love him. And you are still the only one that you can control. The only one. Friends, I want to blow a trumpet this morning and I pray that we would hold physical marriage in honour. That we would choose to love one another. There could be mayonnaise on a physical level but that we would hold the marriage with Christ in such honour as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus, first and foremost. Jesus, we need you in our marriages. We need you in our families. We need you at the dinner table, Jesus. Jesus, we need you in our parliament. Thank you for Scott Morrison. But we need you in our parliament. We need you in our community. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would meet every needing heart. I pray that every person would hear your call for them to meet you at the altar because there's a covenant you want to enter into with them. Father, may marriage be held in high honour and esteem in our lives, in your glorious, matchless and wonderful name we pray this morning. Amen and amen.
Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.